thing I see happen very, very regularly is that companies think, or founders think they've found a solution to a problem that in their mind exists, but um, this is not my statistic, I'm citing it. In 42% of the business failures, startup failures, what it turns out to be is there really is no market need. And mm. so you have to do validation of the problem you're solving for and the need for the solution you're bringing to market. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I am your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several companies to seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. And uh, today we have a, a different episode or, or a special episode. So as you guys have noticed, we do our regular episodes every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, where we have a guest on and we'll talk about their inventive journey. We've also kicked off and are starting to do some guest experts that have come on and talk about different aspects that will likely or should be helpful to most of the startup and the small business community. So a couple of the previous episodes, if you want to go check them out, we had uh, a marriage, uh, marriage and sex uh, coach come on and talk a little about keeping your marriage strong as well as an actual marriage therapist came on a different week and both of those to help you guys uh, keep your marriage strong as you work on startups and work all the grueling hours. So go back and check out those episodes. Um, but today we have uh, Jeff Wallace and I'll let him introduce himself in just a second, but uh, he's a startup accelerator guy or expert, whichever you want to call it. And uh, he helps, uh, he'll explain a little bit more, but a lot of times accelerators for people that are new to startups or want to, or just getting into startups or wanting to accelerate, hence the name, their startup, um, oftentimes will go to accelerators. And uh, my personal experience, there are some great accelerators that absolutely do a great job and or have a great value. And there are some terrible ones that absolutely take your money and run type of a thing. And I think Jeff is on the good side, but we'll let you guys make the decision on the air during the podcast. But uh, Jeff has done some uh, interesting things and he's uh, done some uh, worked and done some work with UC Berkeley. He does Silicon Valley in your pocket and he'll talk a little bit more about that as well as generally what an accelerator is and how what, what's venture backable mean and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. So with that as much of an introduction, welcome onto the podcast, Jeff. Hey, thank you so much, Devin. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with you today. So I gave you a bit of an intro, but maybe for those that aren't aware of it, I, I just gave a high, very high level. What is an accelerator or what, you know, what does an accelerator program do? And I know you guys do maybe a bit differently and move to doing it a bit more virtually than that, but kind of give everybody that kind of level set of what is an accelerator. Sure. So it's interesting. I've been fortunate to be involved in two different accelerators as a co-founder and, and as a, an executive within two of them or a, a co-founder and then a leader. One of them is in a more traditional fashion and the other one is in a, a less traditional fashion. So I'll talk a little bit about both, but backing up to what is an accelerator. So an accelerator is really a place you go to, to access resources, people, tools, et cetera, as a startup founder, which are almost always under-resourced. You get mm. to join an accelerator and get access to lots of resources. Typically you'll find lots of coaches and mentors, advisors, really whatever word you want to put on them. It's basically people who have been through a journey of their own or have the ability to help you as a startup founder with your own journey. Okay. So you'll get access to those kinds of resources. Also, most accelerators give access to lots of tools that a, a startup is going to need, like CRM tools for their customer relationship management, uh, 
cloud storage and cloud uh, facilities like AWS and Google Cloud and others like that. Uh, other technologies like HubSpot is another tool like in the CRM space, for example, they're a great partner of ours and many other accelerators as well. So you get access as a member of in, within an accelerator to lots of tools that come at either free uh, up to a certain amount, and they're not insignificant amounts. They're typically into the five figures in some place, uh, cases, mm. um, or massive discounts, you know, something on the order of 50 to 90% discounts on these tools. And they're all just there to help you get your business going with lesser resources required out of pocket. Okay. So one question, you know, and I, I don't know, I have any particular order of my questions, but to get the ball or kicked off. So, I mean, so I've, I've never been through an accelerator, but I've had a lot of people that I've known that have gone through and, you know, the, I've had, I've heard mixed experiences, you know, some are, they sing the praise of accelerator and some of our clients are go through accelerators and they've had great success. And other times you'll hear people that are, you know, it's almost a cuss word or, hey, you know, they, they, I went in, they took my money or they, you know, they took a whole bunch of equity, took over the company, they didn't take it anywhere. And so what, you know, how, if people are looking and saying, okay, that sounds great, you know, I can get access to resources, I can get mentor, I can get guidance, I've never been through this and I need, you know, I, I like that help and support. How, you know, other than self-promoting and say yours is a great accelerator, how in general do you find what is a good accelerator and one that will actually help? versus one that's a little bit more snake oil or they just want, they just want your money. And as long as you keep paying, they'll keep, uh, or keep doing acceleration. It's a good question. And I, I'm not going to even remotely profess ours is the best out there. Ours, is, there's a lot of good ones out there and yeah, there's a lot of, you know, bad intended people as well mm. um, or bad intentions. Uh, you know, I would recommend looking at either name brands. You know, there are some big, very, very well-known ones. I wouldn't put my own in that level of category. I'm talking about the Y Combinators, 500 Startups, Techstars. These are huge names, big, big names that have obviously, you know, you could go and research the reputations and what they do, find some good information and make an informed decision. There are others that are more niche in that they'll focus in say hardware or life sciences. So they might be more verticalized in tech, et cetera. And again, you can look at the various amount of research and feedback that you can find online, the reviews. Um, also look, there are two different types of accelerators. There are those that invest, they invest money and in exchange in uh, most cases for equity. So they'll take an equity position. The idea in that case is obvious. They're looking to invest and they're very selective. They'll typically take somewhere between one to 2% of the applicant pool. So it's pretty tight to, to get into those because they're making mm -hmm. you know, investment decisions typically in the high five, even as, as much as into the low six figures. So they're making investments in the tens or even north of $100,000. Mm. Normal ranges would be somewhere between say five to 8% of the equity. So just to give an idea. So those accelerators, they're less risky, right? Because they're the ones taking the risk by putting up real hard dollars, capital into the business, and they're taking that in exchange for an equity position. Then there are others, and mine fall into the second category I'm about to describe, which charge. So they'll charge a fee. I find the fees typically nominal. Um, they, they'll charge something like ours charges around $2,000. And if you go through one of our partners, you can even get a discount. And it's a three-month program, so it's and there's no equity taken, so it's a pretty nominal cost. If you want 
to preserve your equity. These are the mm. kinds of accelerators that do well by you. You don't have to give up equity. And then my other accelerator does take equity. We charge a nominal fee, but we do take an equity in, uh, again, in exchange for access to all of the vast resources that I mentioned. So I think looking and doing your homework and finding reviews, I would recommend always asking to talk to people who have gone through the program and get those kinds of reference checks, if you will, of actual entrepreneurs who have been through the program. If I were an entrepreneur going to vet various accelerators, that's exactly what I would do. And we're always very happy to give. We're fortunate. We have a lot of happy and enthusiastic entrepreneurs who've gone through both of the accelerators I'm, I'm affiliated with. And um, they love to talk and, and share their experiences, good, bad, and indifferent. You know, we ask them to just be very honest with people they're, they're in touch with. So one now following because I think that's good advice and I, you know and I I've heard you know both sides right and venture and I and I'll probably pepper you with lots of questions and this uh, there's probably the lawyer would be coming out and trying to get all all to the heart of it but you know one of the questions I always have and it's, it's across the board so it's not just accelerators but it's anytime you get reviews from people you know if I refer you to, I'm only going to give you the good reviews right meaning if I know that a client I'm less likely if a client is really unhappy with my service. I'm not going to say, go talk to them. You know, they'll give you the honest answer. I'm usually going to say, here are the ones that had a great experience. And so if you're trying to, you know, so I think that getting the reviews is absolutely, you should talk out, actually talk with the people that's gone through it and see if it makes sense for you. But how do you, you know, aside from that, for let's say you had, and I'm making up the numbers, 100 people that went through your accelerator, 10%, you know, so 10 people actually liked it, 90% didn't. You refer me over to the 10 that liked it then it sounds like it's a great program, even though 90% are unhappy. So, you know, how do you, I'm just trying to, you know, give people advice. And I think that they have, there's, it serves a good place in the market. You can absolutely help people. But I think that that's where, if I were to hear the number one criticism is that they don't know which one to pick or they don't know if it's worth, you know, giving up equity in their company, if they're getting value. And it's hard to tell a lot of times on the front end. It is really hard to tell. And, and by the way, to your question of, yes, that you're going to be given a, a good reference, right? They're going to give you somebody who is going to speak your praises. Um, ask for multiple references. And in many of the cases, some of the companies, um, one of my accelerators, for example, we post our portfolio companies. So they're posted on a website. Go pick the two or three that you think are sound reasonable to you and ask if you can speak to people from those companies. That way it's not somebody saying, oh, talk to my mom. She'll tell you how good a son I am, you know. <laughs> kind of thing. So I understand your point exactly. And I think it's fair, but look for those, ask for a variety. Don't settle on one or two, ask for a number of reference points, especially if the um, companies, the portfolio companies are listed. Then you have access to say, hey, I looked through your portfolio. I'd like to talk to someone from this, this, and this, you know, company. That way you're picking the companies and it's kind of a, you know, a random draw, so to say, for the accelerator as to who you pick and ask for a reference with. So that's one thing I would do again, is if you have mm -hmm. access to that. Um, what was the rest of your, the other side of your question? I apologize. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably a much too long. <laughs> but, but I'll piggyback on that. One thing I found, and again, this is almost not even accelerators, but across the board, is sometimes as you ask, even if they, you know, they give you all the good referrals, you can ask the referrals now, who else, do you, do you know anybody else that's there? Anybody that didn't people have from their good, cohort. Yeah, yeah, even people exactly. from their existing cohort. So that one's always one. And then, then you can get, you know, the one step removed of, hey, do you know anybody else that you've worked with or anybody that didn't like the program or anybody else, you know, is of that uh, frame, then you can kind of get the all sides of the thing. Because, you know, it's kind of like when I go to Amazon and I see if there's a ton of five-star reviews or there's a ton of one-star reviews, I usually figure the truth is somewhere in the middle, meaning all the five-star reviews, that's probably paid reviews. All the one-star reviews are just people that are never happy. But those three, maybe four-star reviews are going to be where the truth is. And so that's how I always figure if you can kind of get that one step removed, this one. So, 
So now jumping over to a bit more of the accelerator. So you mentioned that there's kind of a couple different types of accelerators, right? One is it's a, we'll take your, you know, take a portion of the equity and we'll take the risk. And then you have the other that's the, the paid one where, you know, you come in, you'll put or make a, a payment, but you get to keep the equity. And I could probably make arguments on both sides, right? On the one side, you know, taking some equity means that they have skin in the game, that they want you to be successful because your success is their success. And, you know, on the, and on the flip side, you know, the ones that you come in and pay, you get to keep all the equity. So you're saying, hey, I don't have to come in. They're not taking an advantage of me because they want to take all the equity. And sure, I'll, and then, then I walk out and I don't have anything left for my own company and ownership. And they got all, they cherry pick all the good ideas. So, you know, do you have a preference of one model or is there a better model depending on where you're at or what kind of business you're at or kind of, you know, any guidance on, you know, choosing which path makes more sense? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk specifically about three models. The, the big model um, that a lot of the bigger brands have used um, is they'll invest, say, $100,000 just for a round figure. Sometimes it's 100 and a quarter. Hmm. Uh, let's use 100 and a quarter, actually. So they'll invest, let's say, $125,000 for, say, 8% of your company. So they're valuing you, you know, at whatever that valuation is. Uh, roughly 12 times, about a $2.5 million valuation, I think that would hmm. amount to. And what they'll do is they'll do what's called a clawback in the industry. It's kind of known as a clawback. So they'll say, we're going to give you $125,000 investment for 8%, but we're going to charge you $25,000 for all of our curriculum and acceleration. So you're really going to net $100,000, but you've given that up for the 8% because you paid them 25 of the 125 back. That's why they call it a clawback. I'll give you 125, but you got to give me 25 for the acceleration. Mm. Um, so that is a very expensive deal. That is a hugely expensive deal because you've now given up 8% for 100000 So you're worth a lot less than if you got 8% for 125000 because they did that clawback. And, and so I, I would urge people to just do the math when you're offered a deal like that. Look at how much is the clawback, how much do they charge you out of that investment of, in my example, one and a quarter to take the curriculum. Because that you're giving up equity for all of the full amount, even though you're only netting cash for the, the smaller amount. Mm. So that's one thing to be aware of. And again, just do the math. I'm not saying it's good, bad. Just do the math and make an informed decision. Sure. The other kind is, so we have one of my accelerators. We charge something on the order of $400 a month for three months. And we take a 4% um, equity position in the form of a stock warrant which really is just giving us, it's like a stock option. It gives us as a company the right to purchase 4% of the equity of that company for a period of time at, a, at an agreed upon price. Typically we do it at the current price. And so you're paying a little bit of money out of pocket. You are giving up the right to this company in this, in this example to acquire 4% of your equity at a, for a long period of time at today's price. So there's you know, some, there's incentive because the real value the company gets is in enhancing the value of that equity, not mm. the $400 a month. That's not doing anything substantive mm. for the company. And then the third example is my virtual accelerator. You mentioned the name earlier, Silicon Valley in your pocket, entirely mm. virtual. And we charge, if, if a company came through one of our affiliate partners and they offer a discount, they charge $1,200 for a 13-week or a three-month program. So it's less than $100 a week that an entrepreneur invests in themselves by taking an acceleration program, there is no equity involved at all. So that's a very reasonable program. And in our example, that example, if you did come through an affiliate partner, which we typically refer people through, they'll mm. pay 
$1,200, and immediately they get access to all the cloud credits from Amazon and Google, both of which are north of $10,000. You don't get one or the other, you get both. You get up to $170,000 worth of benefits for $1,200. I mean, it's actually, it, they can be very good deals and give you access to these kinds of tools and resources at a substantially better price than you would get if you were on your own. So those are the three types of accelerators. I'm not judging between which is the best. I think it's independent, you know, an independent decision each entrepreneur has to make for themselves. Okay, well, but I'm gonna, I'll ask a question, which is what all good attorneys do when they wanna get the answer they wanna do, right? They ask the question differently. If you have a startup that you started today, which of the three models would you pick? I personally, as an entrepreneur, and I was a serial entrepreneur for many years of my own uh, journey, my own career. Um, I always believed that the equity was going to be the most valuable currency. It might be the easiest currency for me today at the beginning, so to say, at the very early stages of my business. It's a currency I might be able to use in lieu of cash, and cash is often in short supply. But I always believed that my equity was going to be worth far more than the cash that it would be in exchange for. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to preserve cash. So I would look to the Silicon Valley in your pocket style pricing where I'm paying under $100 a week and I'm getting access to really, you know, amazingly qualified and experienced resources in addition to all those tools that I was mentioning and cloud credits, et cetera. Um, that one is, it feels like if you can't invest less than $100 a week in your own business for three months in the beginning, you probably have other considerations to think about if that's too much to invest, so to say. Um, so to me, I, that's the only model of the three that actually preserves there's no equity exchange in this mm. case. The others each have equity. One is a 4% stock warrant, so it's giving somebody the option to buy your equity. And in the other, it's oftentimes an investment in exchange for equity. Okay. No, I think that makes sense. So now jumping topics just a little bit. So one thing that we talked a little bit before the, the podcast was on what would be, I think you said venture fund or backable companies, not necessarily they are backed, but they could be backable. And, you know, I guess I'm going to back up. I'll ask that question in just a minute with the preluding question. Um, so you take, you go through the accelerator, you know, so you, you have an, I guess I'll start back even further. When you want to go through and you have an idea, what stage should you approach an accelerator? Meaning it should it be, hey, I've got an idea. I need mentorship on how to do prototyping and modeling and you know, intellectual property and LLCs. Should it be at that stage that you go to an accelerator? Should you already have you know, your idea fleshed out to where you're kind of getting to the prototype stage? Should it be post-prototype and you have a minimally viable product? Or which, you know, what phase do you go to a, 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 an accelerator with? That's a good question, and, and various accelerators do focus on different phases. So we tend to focus on seed and pre-seed, and that's normally a funding level, but that generally implies that they are very early stage. So they might not have a what, what industry folks would call an MVP. They may not have a minimum viable product. They may have an idea and a business concept, and they're fleshing out, if you will, the business model, the go-to-market strategy, uh, the value proposition, all these things. So we, we typically see people at that stage where they don't yet have a product um, in the market. They're not, for the most part, generating revenue. Some are, but that, that's more the exception than the rule. And so pre-seed, you know, pre seed, seed stage tend to be at that cat level of, of status in a company. If you get into a later stage where it's kind of closer to Series A, then they've probably got a product out in the market. They've probably got customers and some revenue generation happening. Uh, in general, that's not to be, you know, it's not a, a, that brush doesn't hit everybody in those categories, but it hits a lot. 
And I think it's good. I love the fact too that I'm getting to do now at this stage of my life and career what I wished existed when I was a serial entrepreneur. I get to now provide that kind of experience and uh, guidance from, from my own experience as an entrepreneur myself to entrepreneurs today. And I actually made a decision in 2015 when I started down this journey of starting and running accelerators that I just wanted to go do for other entrepreneurs that had really good ideas uh, what I wished I had when I was the entrepreneur because I actually thought I'm probably better at helping a lot of entrepreneurs and I'll probably have more fun than focusing in on another new idea and creating a new entrepreneurial, you know, one-off of my own. So that was a conscious decision to do that. Okay. So if I were to, I think just still down and if I'm putting words in your mouth, stop me, you know, when they should do it is probably when they're kind of almost at the seed round, meaning that they've got, maybe they've got a business plan or they, or, you know, at least the beginnings of one, or they've got, you know, a minimally viable product or they have something tangible. So probably not necessarily the idea stage of, Hey, I had this idea now help me get it in fruition, but they put in a little bit of blood, sweat, effort, tears, maybe a little bit of their own money. And they developed it to a point that now, okay, we can help you accelerate it or take it to the next level. Is that about right? I think that's fair. I think, um, you know, we even have, for example, a relationship with the company Stripe, if you're familiar with the big payments player. They have a program called Stripe Atlas, which even helps companies get formed. Uh, so it can take an entrepreneur who has an idea and wants to put, say, a Delaware C Corporation, um, in many cases, underneath it, right, and build the business as a, in that corporate structure. So they might come to us without having any corporate structure. It could be in the mid to later idea stages, and now they want to put an entity together and go get venture funding for that entity. So it's not unusual for us to see some companies even at that stage. Most of the companies we see typically have an entity formed already. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's an entity structure we don't necessarily suggest for investments, meaning they might have it as an LLC or wherever they got their guidance, they might have it as an S-Corp. These are more challenging entity structures to get funding, uh, funding from, from third party mm -hmm. investors. But typically we, we see companies that have some form of an entity form. If they don't, we just help them through access to the strike program that gets them uh, a, a proper entity structure for investors. Okay. No, I think that makes good sense. So now I'll jump to my next question, which is when I started out and then backed up at, which is you, you talked a little bit about what venture backable means and what, you know, so what does that mean? What do you, when you're, let's say you go through, you get your MVP or you get your business plan together and you're looking to be venture backable or be, now maybe and you define different, I define venture backable as being at the, at the level that venture capitalists or maybe angel investors, depending on how you define those, are looking to invest in money or otherwise or invest in the venture. So what does venture backable mean or what is that level that you need to be at? Yeah, venture backable to us means that it is a business that has the characteristics that would generate enough return and, and could grow enough scale, et cetera, that it could generate the kinds of returns that third party investors are interested in. So mm -hmm. some of the businesses that don't count, for example, as venture backable. If you were to say as an entrepreneur, I want to create a, uh, a taco truck, a lunch truck. Could be, could be a great business. And maybe you could have 10 trucks, maybe 20 trucks, you know, as you grow the business. Um, but that's more of a lifestyle business. That's the term you'll hear frequently in the space, lifestyle businesses. They're not bad businesses. There's no judgment about a lifestyle business. They're just not typically the kinds of business that are going to reach the scale and 
provide the returns that a third-party investor is typically looking for when they're looking at investing in businesses. Um, similarly, a services business. I mean, you're an IP attorney, so you are in a services business yourself. Sure. Services businesses don't tend to have the multiples on valuation that mm. a, a more leveraged business. So if I built an app and a billion people download my app, that's pretty high leverage. I'm sitting in my home building it, writing code to build an app and a billion people could download it. That's pretty high leverage. Mm. You have to sell hours. You're selling minutes and hours of a day. Well, there's limit to that. It's very non-scalable in the same way that like my software app example. Mm. So services businesses and lifestyle businesses tend to have a little more challenge raising third-party investor capital. What about, what about software as a service or a SaaS company? Because that's kind of a service, kind of not. So how do you define that one? The, the SaaS companies actually are probably a sweet spot for investors. A SaaS company simply means it's software as a service. So um, what it typically implies, it's not necessarily a given, but it's, it's pretty typically implied that a SaaS business is some kind of a recurring revenue subscription kind of a thing. So, for example, I, uh, I mentioned one of our partners, HubSpot. They're a CRM solution. Well, there's a monthly fee for using you know, HubSpot. So what happens is in a SaaS business, if it is in that format of a subscription, and there's all sorts of, I mean, I use them as one of uh, a gazillion examples of companies or that have One this. people might know is Netflix, right? Netflix would Netflix. be a very, very simple, right? It's a subscription. The beauty of businesses like that is you sell once, but you collect revenue all the time. Every new dollar of revenue doesn't require a new transaction or a new customer. Mm. It's sell once, and yet I'm sure, you know, many, maybe yourself and many of your viewers, I'm sure, have Netflix. So they subscribe, they pay their 8, 10, 11, 12 bucks a month, whatever it may be. Most people don't know their Netflix uh, monthly fee, by the way, in my experience. <laughs> Um, but what like, once is, you get out of monthly fee period, you usually forget about it. You'd have to go look it up because you can't remember. It's on a, an auto charge to a credit card. But what they know is they watch it enough to justify whatever the price range they have in their mind is. Right. Right. And that is a great business because you think about a Netflix, every new dollar of revenue, they can start every year without a new customer and still count on hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue from their existing install base. So SaaS businesses that operate with that type of a model. Um, are very uh, lucrative businesses uh, in potential, you know, if they, if they become successful. Very investable, very leverageable like that. Okay. No, I think that makes sense. So, all right. So, <laughs> the rest, I, and I agree. I mean, and I, and I do work in this, at least one, I, and, I met, and I can't remember if I mentioned before. So, I do, I split my time between a few startups I'm a part of and I do, and then I also uh, do Miller IP Law. Um, but I certainly get on the IP Law side, it is a hard, but you know, it's compounded. It's, if you go into, and I'm going off on a tangent for just a second, but the harder thing is even in a legal field is, you know, first of all, it's hard to do a multiple, as you said, because a lot of it is a book of business, right? And you can put a price on it, but a lot of times the people are more with that person, not necessarily with the law firm, right? So they like an attorney or, you know, a couple attorneys or that, but it's, you know, with exceptions, but generally they're saying if that person leaves, I may not stay at the law firm. And so sure. it's hard to, hard to put a multiple because it's almost on the person, but then on the legal side and one, you know, this is my tangent or my rabbit hole. It's even one side because most States, they have rules that you can't even have owners in the, in the law firm, unless you're a, a, an actual attorney. So then it makes it double or twice as hard. And so I, you know, the legal field gives you kind of a double whammy where, you know, it's not invent or very investable. 
and you can't even get investors, even if you could convince them that it's investable. And so it makes it so a lot of people have a hard time starting in the legal field to actually build a book because, you know, as there is a lot of other companies, you go and you get investors or you go get people that are other partners in that. And yet in the legal field, you're a lot more limited. So I'm always of the opinion that they should do away with that. But that's a, a whole longer ta- or rabbit hole that we could go down at some point. Yep, yep. No, it makes sense. And you're right. It does make it the, the characteristics you're describing. If I strip it back from the law firm, if I just said, here's the characteristics of a business, would you invest? Most investors would look at those characteristics and say, that's not highly leveraged mm-hmm. as an investment opportunity. The potential is lesser than, say, a SaaS business or something like that. So it would be less desirable as an investor to look at a business with those characteristics. All right. Well, we're getting towards the end of the podcast. I'll ask one more question and then, and then maybe I'll still jump, even though it's the expert one, you've had enough uh, experience with startups and doing your own and that, that I'll still ask my two questions I always ask at the end. But before I do that, so you, you work with a lot of startups, small businesses, you know, people are going through the accelerator, people that have big aspirations and, you know, all those things. What is the, you know, top one or two mistakes that you see most businesses make whether it's going through accelerator or not, that you would guide or counsel them to avoid? So I would say one thing I see happen very, very regularly is that companies think or founders think they've found a solution to a problem that in their mind exists, but um, this is not my statistic, I'm citing it. In 42% of the business failures, startup failures, what it turns out to be is there really is no market need. And so you have to do validation of the problem you're solving for and the need for the solution you're bringing to market. A lot of founders just presume that their instinct is right or the the way they interpret and perceive the problem is very common. And like I said, 42%, it is the number one reason startups fail is no, no actual market need. So do the proper validation of the problem you're solving for and the solution as an actual and real solution to that problem. That's a big, big thing. Mm. The other thing I see happen with, I'd say 90% of the time or more in the vast, vast majority of the time is founders present to investors like myself or others. um, They'll talk about a lot of features and um, I, I like to say they talk in concepts and statistics. That's a really hard thing for most people to absorb and consume and, and interpret. And so we recommend a lot, present the problem in a way that is really relatable to your audience. Mm. And so I'll give you just a small example. I had one um, gentleman who was a founder of a, a company that did blood tests to identify cancers. And it was actually quite a- effective mm. um, to identify cancers very early on through a fairly simple and uh, non-invasive blood test. And his problem slide, when he presented that, that's typically the first slide out on, mm. a, on a pitch deck, his problem slide had four charts in a quadrant, uh, four quadrants on the slide. And he was showing the ineffectiveness, if you will, the uh, just of, of other methods of detecting cancer today. Mm. And I, I kind of said to him jokingly, I said, you know, by the time you're done explaining this slide, I have cancer. Like, th- you got to get through this stuff way faster and in a way that I can relate to. And mm. so I lost a, a family member. Uh, uh, my father passed from cancer. And so it was very near and dear to me. And if you ask people, hey, do you know anyone or have you yourself experienced, you know, your friends, family, loved ones or yourself experienced cancer? Most people will say yes. 
Sure. So we changed up his problem slide was a photograph of his cousin who died of late stage detected breast cancer. And he was super close with her. And so the minute he starts saying who she is and why she's not here, and but geez, if they had a solution that could have identified her cancer earlier, maybe she'd be here with us on this call. Like that's a very powerful and relatable, everybody can relate to that. And that is the kind of messaging, the way entrepreneurs or founders message has to be thought of from the recipients or the, the listener's perspective, not their perspective. And I oftentimes see that happen um, at, at, in most cases with founders presenting their, their, their widgets or their solutions. All right. No, I think that's good, good counsel, good advice. The one I'd always sew on top of the, you know, in my more limited experiences when people come in and say, now we've got this huge market and it's a multi-billion dollar market. If we only capture one or 2% of that Agreed. market, think about how much money we're going to make. And I don't know how we're going to capture, but we only had to capture this one little percentage and then we're going to be rich. Absolutely right. We recommend against what, you, what you're describing, I call the top down. We don't do top down market sizing. I don't want to hear it's a multi-billion and I need a small sliver. We recommend doing a three-year bottoms up forecast because that shows the investors you, what steps you're taking tomorrow, next week, next month, next quarter, next six months, next year, all the way for 36 months. That way they can see that you've actually thought about it. Mm -hmm. You're not being what I would call lazy. And just saying it's a $10 billion market, I only need 1% will be a you know, $100 million business. That, that's, that's pretty lazy um, because you're not really saying how you're going to do it. Exactly all the questions you just asked. So we recommend uh, very strongly against top-down uh, market sizing and only doing a three-year bottoms up. No. All right, so we there's a whole bunch more rabbit holes we go down along there, but in the for the keeping the the podcast a reasonable length, we'll forego that this gets go around. But I'll ask, I always ask, and I usually don't ask the experts, but I, you're you're you get to be the special exception um, for the expert one. I normally on the podcast I'll ask two questions at the end, and so you can base it off of previous startups you've gone through and that. But what's the one biggest uh, bit or worst business mistake you've ever made? Worst business mistake I've made, I'm, I'm very comfortable to talk about it, and I do get asked this a lot in just speaking about kind of the startup ecosystem. The worst business mistake I made, I think, was timing, not understanding timing. We had brought a solution out into the market, um, and it was way premature. The market just wasn't ready. Um, we were, my colleagues and I in the business, were essentially kind of uh, early, you know, early testers of stuff, evangelists of, of new tech and innovation. But that doesn't create a mass market. And um, to give you a sense of it, it was literally 22 years ago, 1998. Um, we had built a technology much like Zoom, like we're talking on right now. It was video conferencing, audio conferencing, exactly as we're experiencing, data collaboration, shared whiteboards, et cetera. And, you know, the Internet infrastructure, if you will, was DSL, was an amazing in innovation at that time. Um, so it, it wasn't quite able to deliver the user experience. It was ahead of its time. And we persisted and tried to kind of force a little bit of a, a square peg into a round hole by saying, no, it's ready. Now, we did some good things in that business. We partnered with Apple, and we uh, had some amazing experiences doing some business aspects of what we did. But mm. I think not recognizing that we were, we were premature in the market timing of our product. Okay. No, I think that, that that's certainly a mistake, but it's one that, you know, especially if you're on air on the techie side that you can talk yourself and these are the awesome features and people may not be writing almost internet. And I, that almost goes back to our earlier conversation of Netflix, 
I like to read and I always have to laugh. My wife always gives me a hard time that I work with startups and do my own startups. And then when I have free time, I like to read books about startups, which is, you know, that's my hobby. But on the one that I read recently was uh, on Netflix and they looked at, you know, this was very burgeoning uh, DVDs, DVDs coming out and VHS is still being very popular, but starting to phase out. But when they started, there was like a thousand or 1500 DVDs period out in the marketplace. And yet they looked at, you know, if could we do VHSs? And they basically came to the conclusion VHSs are going to be way too expensive to ship. We're never going to be able to make enough money off of it. And so they looked at it. And so that was one where they got the timing just right, but they also waited a couple of years before it really caught up. You know, that was when they shipped DVDs. Now they still do that. People lots of times don't even remember they ship DVDs. Yeah, yeah but, they do. Um, and we actually, very side note, me and my wife actually still use a DVD service all the time because we use that for our date night movie because you can get new releases a lot of times aren't on Netflix or, you know, on the streaming service. Um, nice. But so I think that that's one where timing is a big and you have to look at not just is it cool technology, but is it going to be acceptable to the marketplace? So I absolutely. Yep. So second question I always ask in the, um, is. Now, if you're talking to a startup, small business, somebody that's just getting into it, just getting started, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Uh, that's interesting. I've been asked this question before as well, and my first answer is ignore the no's. Hmm. Meaning, so many people, you as an entrepreneur, and it happened to me as well, that you talk to, you go, hey, we think this is an amazing idea. A lot of people go, well, is it really? And they'll poke holes at it. Hmm. And I believe... You know, you have to, as an entrepreneur, if you've come up with an idea and you have belief in that idea, run that ground ball out. Don't, don't take someone else's word that it's a bad idea. It may prove to be a bad idea, but prove that to yourself. Don't take someone else's word for it because you'll always be looking back and asking what if. And you don't want to live a life as an entrepreneur that way. You want to you decide for yourself that, you know what, they're right or, you know what, they're wrong. And in many cases, I think there are a lot of examples of entrepreneurial endeavors that there were more naysayers in the beginning, and yet they become phenomenally successful businesses. So ignore the no's. And I'll even throw one more on top of that, if you, if you permit me. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Um, the other answer I would give to that is become really, really good at communicating your message. Because I don't care how great an idea you have, if you can't communicate it effectively to the stakeholders that you need to, that could be investors, partners, clients, et cetera, other employees or prospects, um, you won't go very far. So you're going to have to learn to get very good at communicating or surround yourself with people who are. So, you know, stay in your, in your swim lane if you're an entrepreneur, but at least surround yourself with people who do the things that are necessary to succeed. Yeah, and I'd almost caveat that with, you know, surround either, and I completely agree on, you know, being a communicator, but I think you've either got, it's got to be someone that's the founder or part of the company, meaning you can't just, sometimes you get into that, if I just go get a good sales guy, he's going to make all the difference in our business, it's going to turn it around, we just need a good marketing guy or a good sales guy, and I'm not saying they don't, they aren't a good thing for the business, don't take me wrong, but if, if, if you as a founder or co-founder, if you can't explain it, if you can't make it understandable, you're never going to succeed just with a good sales guy. So I think you've got to, either you or someone very high-level founder, C-level on the team has to be able to communicate your message very clearly. Because most of the time when you get in, especially if you're in the business or venture or others, people don't want to hear from the sales guy. They want to hear from the actual founder or someone that's actually there on the business. I agree with your point, and I would say, you know, you mentioned a founder or a co-founder. I would, uh, I would, and I'm not suggesting when you use the word founder, you implied this, but I interpret it as a solo founder. 
Um, I often, when I get approached by solo founders, and this did happen in one particular example I can think of off the top of my head, a solo founder came to me. I liked the gentleman very much. I liked his idea quite a bit, but I was concerned. And I said to him, go find yourself a really solid co-founder. Come back and meet with me with that person. And mm -hmm. if I like that person, then, then I'll invest. And he asked me why. And I said, because I don't invest in solo founders because I run the risk of the Greyhound bus syndrome. <laughs> and he, he looked at me, talked his head. He said, what do you mean? And I said, let's say we meet in a coffee shop and we leave. We had a good meeting. We, you step off the curb to cross over to the street and you get run over by a Greyhound bus. My investment's gone. You have no succession plan. There's no mm -hmm. one to carry the torch of the business forward. So did I really invest in a business in that scenario? The answer is no. And so if you really want to get investors to invest in your business, there has to be what I would just call the succession plan or somebody to carry the torch forward outside of maybe the one of the co-founders. There needs to be a, another co-founder. And I often recommend doing that in a balanced way. If you're a business guy, get a tech co-founder. If you're a tech guy, get a business co-founder. If you're a, a businesswoman, get a technical woman as a co-founder. Or you know, mix and mingle it however you do it. Have a, a, a mix of skills, a balanced set of skills. Don't get people just like you. Yeah, no, and I, I completely agree on all of that. So, yeah. yeah. So, well, m lots of more things that we could talk through. But as we wrap up the podcast, I appreciate you coming on. So, if people want to get involved, use your accelerator, reach out with questions or any of the above, um, or just pick your brain or ask how to get venture or whatnot, what's the best way to connect up with you or reach out? They can contact me via our website at www.siliconvalleyinyourpocket.com. Uh, to shorten it, you can just use the initials, sdiyp.com, uh, or you can just email me at jeff at sdiyp.com, and I'd be more than happy to help any of your listeners with any questions they have. Well, I'd certainly invite everybody to check you out, and if, it, if they line up with what you guys are looking for and it'd be a good match, I absolutely think that it'd be a worthwhile program to engage with. So thank you again for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun to talk through uh, all of the things, the expertise that you're offering and all the advice you can give to the startups and small businesses getting started. For those of you that are either wanting to be an expert or wanting to be just a regular guest on the podcast and tell your story, um, feel free to go to inventivejourneyguest.com and apply to be on the podcast. Um, and for those of you that are listeners, make sure to subscribe so you can hear all the new episodes as they come out. And finally, if you need any help with any patents and trademarks, feel free to reach out to us at Miller IP Law. Jeff, thank you again for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And uh, hopefully uh, people are able or keep us using your accelerator and you'll be able to help lots of startups and small businesses be a raging success. Fantastic. Devin, thank you so much. I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you over the time here and uh, much appreciate you inviting me on today. All right. Have a good one. Take care.